Welcome to the James River Church Podcast. You're about to hear another inspirational message from Pastor John Lindell. It's our prayer that this message is an encouragement and blessing to your life. The next few moments, I want to talk to you just briefly about what difference does the resurrection make in our lives. To do that, I'd like you to Look with me at the screen, John chapter 20, John's Gospel, chapter 20, verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. People say, who is that? Well, it's John. He's the one who's writing the Gospel. And of course, why call yourself John if you can call yourself the one who Jesus loved? I mean, hey, that's good. He said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So Peter and John get to the tomb. John gets there first. He won't go in. Peter goes in. He looks around. Then John looks around, and it says he believes. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I'm returning to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. It's very interesting that following the resurrection, Jesus does not say to people, I was resurrected. He says, I am the resurrection. You know, in the spring, there's a lot of charity events where they do golf tournaments to raise funds for the year. And they'll do a golf, uh, a four-man scramble. And usually they'll give each group a certain number of mulligans so that if they, nobody in the group makes a good shot, uh, somebody can have a do-over. They can have another shot. As a pastor, it's my observation that there's a lot of people in life who would love to have a do-over who'd like to have a do-over when it comes to that marriage that failed, who would like to have a do-over when it comes to parenting and mistakes that they feel were made along the way. Maybe you would like to have a do-over in a move or in a career choice, or maybe just in some other choice that had devastating consequences. If only they could have a do-over. If only they could have a fresh start. And Jesus comes and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And what he's saying is, I can offer you a fresh start. I can give you an eternal newness. I wasn't just 
resurrected. I am the resurrection, present tense. Right now, right where you're at, he is the resurrection. He's saying I was dead and now I'm alive. And the life that I have, you can live. That your life can be united with my life and my power can work in your situation to give you a fresh start, to give you a new life. But if you and I are going to experience that eternal newness, if we're going to experience that fresh start, that clean slate, there are some things we have to do. And Mary's story helps us so much as we come to John chapter 20. Let me just say a couple of things about Mary, a little bit of background. There's a lot of Marys in the gospel, and so we want to make sure we're talking about the right one. There's Mary, the mother of Jesus. There's Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. Then there's Mary Magdalene. She's called Magdalene because she's from a village known as Magdala, and it is on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a resort town, it was a wealthy town, and it was an immoral town. Church history tells us that Mary was a prostitute. The Bible tells us on two occasions that Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary. So this is a woman who not only had a checkered past, this is a woman who knew brokenness and oppression and evil at a very deep level. And she meets Jesus and she begins to follow him along with this group that would go pretty much wherever he went. It wasn't just the 12 disciples, but there was a contingent of people who traveled with him and helped him. It's interesting, of all the people Jesus could appear to on that first Easter, he appears to Mary. And there are three lessons that I want you to notice just briefly from Mary's interaction with Jesus. The first one is this. You can know about Jesus and still miss Jesus. You can know about him and still miss what he's doing. You can still miss seeing him or identifying what's happening. You know, on four occasions, it's very interesting. Jesus had told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be turned over to the chief priests. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be executed. I'm going to die. And I will rise again on the third day. He said it so often that his enemies had heard it and remembered it. You remember, they go to Pilate and they say, listen, this imposter said he was going to be raised again on the third day. And so we would like some soldiers so that we can keep the tomb sealed up. A lot of scholars believe that there could have been as many as 50 Roman soldiers there at the tomb guarding Jesus. Now here's Mary. She's heard those words. And Mary on top of that has followed Jesus and she's seen a lot of miracles. She saw the feeding of the 5,000. She saw the feeding of the 4,000. She heard about Jesus walking on water and Peter walking on water to meet him. She saw Jesus open the eyes of the blind. She saw Jesus raise the dead. She personally experienced his power as he cast seven demons out of her. So on that first Easter, 
When Mary shows up at the tomb and the stone is rolled away and the grave clothes are there, it's a major clue that Jesus has risen from the dead. You might expect that Mary, of all people, is going to walk in there. She's going to see what's happened and she's going to say, oh my goodness, it's true. He was resurrected. But she doesn't. Not only does she not go there in her thinking, but she looks inside the tomb and she sees two angels there and she has a conversation with them as if that's normal. <laughs> like, where is he? She's asking, she's talking to them. So now she's seen an empty tomb, she's seen angels, and she still doesn't understand that he has been resurrected. Last of all, she turns, and as she turns, there's Jesus. He's standing there, but she doesn't recognize him. And he says to her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And she still didn't get it. What's very interesting is three times she misses the fact of the resurrection. Why is that? Because you can know about Jesus and still miss him. I mean, she believes in general in Jesus, but she didn't believe the main message about Jesus. And the main message about Jesus is he died for our sins. He was buried in the grave and he rose again on the third day. She didn't understand it. She didn't believe it. Mary was operating on assumptions when it came to Jesus. She was operating on the assumption he was not resurrected. She was operating on the assumption that his body had to be someplace else, that somebody had moved his body. You know, Mary's not a lot different than a lot of people today who, when it comes to Jesus, operate on assumptions. They assume Jesus isn't real. They assume Jesus isn't God. They assume Jesus was just a great moral teacher like so many others who have lived. They assume that their opinion about Jesus is accurate. They assume that knowing him personally as your savior is not important. Some people assume that knowing about Jesus is the same as personally knowing him, and it isn't. Here's some things, aside from the fact that he died, was buried, and rose again, that you and I need to know about Jesus. Number one, we, you need to know he died for your sin. That there was no way that you or I could pay our sin debt and sin must be judged. And Jesus took our place and he did it in love. In Romans chapter five and verse eight, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before you and I knew about him, he was dying for us. The second thing you need to know is Jesus is the only way to God. All roads don't lead to heaven. That's not true. If the Bible is true, then it is true that all roads don't lead to heaven. Jesus made the very exclusive statement in John chapter 14 and verse six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
The apostles said in the book of Acts, there is no other name among men given under heaven whereby we must be saved. You can only find salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. There's a third thing you need to know about Jesus. You must be born again. It's very interesting. Jesus, in a conversation, says to Nicodemus, I tell you the truth. Whenever Jesus says, I tell you the truth, what he's saying is he's saying, you need to listen up. This is really, really important. And he says, no one can see the kingdom of God. That's heaven. Unless he is born again. You can't, you can't know him. You can't experience heaven unless you're born again. In fact, he says a little later in that same conversation, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. It's not optional, it's essential. You say, what does it mean to be born again? It's when a person puts their faith in Christ, and when that happens, it's as if you become a brand new person. It's you, but it's a new you. Hence, you were born again. Mary didn't understand that you can know about Jesus and still miss Jesus. Here's another thing I want you to notice. You can be near Jesus and not see Jesus. Look at this in verse 14. At this, she turned around, saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. You say, why didn't she recognize him? Some will say, well, you know, she was just filled with grief. And when people are filled with grief, they don't think clearly. That may be true, but Mary's issue is not in this moment that she's filled with grief. Actually, you read the text, you find she's rather irritated with people. Somebody has taken Jesus' body. Who took it? She's a woman on a mission. She is going to find out, it, she's going to interrogate those angels again if she has to. She's going to figure out where is that body. You know what her problem is? You know why she doesn't see Jesus? Same thing that happens to people all the time. If you don't look at life through the eyes of faith, you will miss Jesus every time. She's looking naturally. She's not looking through faith. If she were walking by faith, she would have seen an empty tomb. She would have seen the grave clothes. She would have seen the angels. And she would say, this is exactly what Jesus said would happen. But Mary's experience is like a lot of people today. Jesus is in this place. You can sense his presence in this place. You're near Jesus, but like Mary, you can't see him because you're not walking by faith. And faith comes in response to the facts. The facts are he died for your sin and my sin. He was buried in the grave. He was there Friday, Saturday, and on Sunday, he rose again. Faith comes when you and I say, I'm going to put, I'm going to believe the record from Scripture. I'm going to believe that Jesus died for my sin. I'm going to ask Jesus to come in and to change my heart. When a person does that, instantly they see things differently. Listen, it's not enough, and I'm not here to offend anybody, but I am here to tell you the truth because I care very much about where you spend eternity. 
I hear all the time, it's very chic to say this, but it's not gonna get people to heaven. Being hip and being cool and, and having the cultural vocabulary won't get you into heaven. I have people who say to me, well, I'm not religious, but I'm a very spiritual person. It doesn't matter, being spiritual won't get you to heaven. Going to church, this church or any other, won't get you to heaven. Being a nice person, being a moral person, being a better person than a lot of other people you know, won't get you to heaven. Whatever you want to list, there is no way to get to heaven except through faith in Jesus Christ. You have to put your faith in him in order to go to heaven. And here's what we learned from Mary. You can know Jesus when you put your faith in Jesus. John chapter 20 and verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she hears his voice. I believe this. I believe God speaks to people. The Bible says over and over again, and the Lord said, God has a lot to say to people, and he speaks to people in a variety of ways. He knocks on the door of their heart. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's the door of the human heart. He says, If anyone will open it, I will come in. He's knocking on people's hearts right now. I know he is. I've watched it in every single service. As the God who loves you more than you can imagine has ordered the circumstances of your life to be in this place at this time that you might have an encounter with him that will transform your life. Here's Mary, and she turns toward him. Listen, that's what Easter is about. It's about turning to Jesus. It's about saying, Lord, I believe in that moment. As she looks at him with the eyes of faith, she recognizes him. Listen, when you put your faith in Jesus, powerful things happen. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You become new. It's you, but you're new. You're new from the inside out, and that affects everything around you and everything in you. Old things have passed away. You say, yeah, but I did this, and I did this, and I did this. No, that's gone. When you put your faith in Christ, it's gone. You say, how can that be? Because his blood washes us white as snow. Theologians call it expiation. It's gone with no trace. What a joy for people to understand that when you're worried about all the things you did in your past, God not only doesn't remember them, he can't see them because the blood has washed them away. That's the power of salvation. That's how you become new. That's how everything becomes new. It's a fresh start. It's a clean slate. It's a new beginning. And it comes because Jesus wasn't just resurrected. It comes because he is the resurrection and the life. He says, I came that they might have life, the King James says, and more abundantly, the message says, more and better than you ever imagined. Jesus Christ can work in your life in ways you can't begin to imagine. In fact, the Bible says as much. 
It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And it's not talking about heaven because the next verse says, but God has revealed them to us by his spirit. You see, once you give your heart to Christ, instantly God begins working in your life and he shows you things in you that you didn't know were there. And he shows you the purpose for which you were created. And he begins to walk with you and you have a personal relationship with him where you don't only know about him, but you actually know him. And it changes your life. His power has the ability to do that. You say, well, what, is that? what does that look like when you talk about life change, when you talk about a clean slate, when you talk about a new person? I mean, how does that work? Maybe the best way to explain it to you is to let you hear somebody talk about the difference Jesus made in their life. Here's the story of Andrew and Alyssa. It's powerful. Listen to it. I'm Andrew, and this is my wife, Alyssa, and uh, we attend the South Campus. I like to smile a lot whenever we first met. I think I won her over with my, my cooking and my grilling. I was a Kraft mac and cheese from the box kind of girl. My taste buds were thanking him for actually bringing me some better food than what I could cook. I was raised in church, but I definitely found myself getting pulled more socially versus spiritually. In high school, I had a baby and ended up being in multiple relationships. I really started drinking heavily. I really was trying to fill a lot of voids, trying to find myself, trying to figure out who I was, feeling super lost. So my earliest memories uh, came from living with my mom. Um, my, my parents had been divorced. My mom was unable to take care of uh, my brother and I. We, were, we had been uh, living in a, in a motel. Her struggling with uh, her addictions. Uh, I walked through a, a season of um, abuse and, and, and neglect that left um, many years of me figuring out how to accept love from people. Uh, my thought process was, well, if my own mother doesn't love me enough to take care of me, who else could love me? God sure doesn't love me. I started uh, doing drugs. I started selling drugs. I started um, cheating people. I sold some drugs to an undercover cop, received a felony, was in jail for 183 days. When I moved to Springfield, uh, I thought it was going to be a fresh start. It was going to be a new, new day, and uh, that's when Alyssa and I uh, met and we started dating. But the depression, the anxiety, the, the fear, the, the worthlessness uh, just followed me here. I would literally like look at myself in the mirror and like tell myself all of the negative things that I was thinking about. You're worthless. No one's ever going to love you. No one's ever gonna like care about you. Just completely break myself down. I would wake up in the middle of the night just with terrible, like, demonic nightmares. Like, and he would, he would like, literally would be, be screaming, like, there's, there's someone on me. And it was like midnight. You could feel the enemy here. And it was like a, it was like a darkness over the house. It wasn't something I could handle on my own. I felt like there was more for me. Like, I felt like I didn't have to feel this way. So coming to James River, there was something different about the atmosphere. And you look around and everybody's talking to somebody, everybody's smiling. And I'm like, 
okay, like there's something going on here. Prior to this, I had, God had been really doing a work in me. And so I had given my life to Christ. And that day that I was working, he, Andrew went to church with the kids. The sermon that day was about how we accept the love of God. That was my major, like, hindrance throughout my life was accepting love. I needed to surrender to God. And I was just like, bam, like that, that's me. Like Pastor John speaking to me. The moment I stepped out into the aisle, I could instantly feel God transforming me. I got baptized and even more, more so we saw like the, the heaven open up over our lives. The way God transformed me was, was unreal. My kids saw it, my, my family saw it, Alyssa saw it. The insecurities are gone. He's joyful, he has purpose. I found my worth uh, in my relationship with him. And a week after I gave my life to the Lord, my criminal record was expunged, like nothing had ever happened. Quite literally, God cleaning the slate for me to live a new life. I have just this utter assurance and joy and peace over my life that I never even thought was possible. Isn't that great? I want you to think about what they said. I mean, here's Alyssa. She recognizes there's a void in her heart that she can't fill. She's tried to fill it with relationships. She's tried to fill it with other things, but she can't fill it because the fact of the matter is God has created every single human being with a God-shaped void that only He can fill. And that without Him in a person's life, life's never really complete. She's trying to find her purpose. She's trying to figure out what, what all that is about. She meets Jesus, and not only is the void filled, but God's purpose, why is she here? What is life about? It all comes together for her. And then you watch Andrew, and you, you look at Andrew and his journey, and here's a person who's grown up with incredible abuse. And the result is a self-loathing, a depression, a heaviness, an anxiety, a sense that he can't be loved because his own mother didn't love him when he was growing up. And so he does what people do. I mean, he tried to fill it with substances. That didn't work. He tried to, he tried to get a fresh start. A lot of people think, you know, if I can just get a new location, if I just change locations, things will be different. The problem is you're not different. So you bring yourself into a new location and it's just the same song, second verse. So then he meets Alyssa and he thinks, okay, now I've got it happening. Now I've met that person because so many people think that another person is gonna complete them and there's only one person who will ever complete you and that's Jesus. And until you find completion in him, you'll never feel complete. So he's going through all of this and, and the loathing and the depression and the anxiety and just this sense, I mean, even demonic activity in their life. What's the answer to all that? What are you gonna tell somebody who tells you that's what they're going through? How about understand how much God loves you and put your faith in him and he'll change your life. He'll give you a fresh start. He'll wipe the slate clean. He'll give you a new beginning. You say, oh, John, that just sounds too good to be true. It sounds too simple, too easy. Paul says this, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. 
I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? Because it is the power of God for the salvation, or we could say deliverance, of everyone who believes. There's something very powerful about putting your faith in the gospel. In that moment, you put your faith in God, and God does in you what none of us could ever do on our own. He changes our life. He makes us new. He gives us a walk with him. He, he gives us a sense of wholeness and purpose and his presence on our life that transforms life itself. And that's what Easter's all about. Now, Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. The other gospels tell us he was a murderer. It's also interesting, and, and John again doesn't mention this, but Matthew does, that a part of the reason why Jesus is juxtapositioned with Barabbas is because of Barabbas' first name. You know, Barabbas is his last name. Bar means son of Abbas, rabbi, son of a rabbi. So that makes him all the more notorious. He's a preacher's kid gone bad, really bad, right? His first name is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, though the English translations almost always leave it out. Some of the early ESV translations have it. Your RSV will have it. The reason why they leave it out is because they don't want to confuse people. His name in the Greek is Yeshua, Jesus. So Pilate says to them, who do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ. And Pilate can't believe his ears when the crowd chants, give us Barabbas. And he says, well, then what do I do with Jesus called the Christ? Crucify him. So Pilate still can't get rid of Jesus. He knows he's innocent, but he's trying to figure out how to free him. So Pilate comes up with a very gruesome alternative to killing him. Luke 23 and verse 22, for the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. John's gospel puts it this way, John 19.1, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now the, the flogging, we've been in the book of Acts and we read recently about the apostles being beaten for their faith, uh, receiving the lash. The Jewish whip was one strap of leather and no more than 39 lashes were given at any one time. I'm not saying it wasn't painful, but I do want you to understand it was not even close in comparison to the Roman flogging. Truth Magazine describes it this way. Scourging, called verberatio by the Romans, was possibly the worst kind of flogging administered by ancient courts. Scourging was not normally a form of execution, but it certainly was brutal enough to be fatal in many cases. 
A person certainly could be beaten to death by the scourge if that was desired. Its purpose was not only to cause great pain, but to humiliate as well. It was belittling, debasing, and demeaning. It was considered such a degrading form of punishment that Roman citizens were exempt from it. It was therefore the punishment appropriate only for slaves and non-Romans, those who were viewed as the lesser elements in Roman society. To make it as humiliating as possible, scourging was carried out in public. The instrument used to deliver this form of punishment was called in Latin a flagellum or a flagrum. This was much different from the bullwhip that is more common in our culture. The flagellum was a whip with three leather straps, each three feet long, with the straps weighted with lead balls or pieces of bone or metal often filed to sharp points. This instrument was designed to lacerate. The weighted strap struck the skin so violently that it broke open. The church historian Eusebius of Caesarea recounts with vivid, horrible detail a scene of scourging. He says, quote, for they say that the bystanders were struck with amazement when they saw them lacerated with scourges even to the innermost veins and arteries so that the hidden inward parts of the body, both their bowels and their members, which would be their internal organs, were exposed to view. The victim of a scourging was bound to a post or frame, stripped of his clothing, and beaten with the flagellum from the neck and shoulders to the thighs. The beating left the victim bloody and weak and in unimaginable pain and near the point of death. The lashes were delivered without any compassion or consideration for the victim's health. Roman law imposed no limit to the number of lashes inflicted at scourging, although at least 50 lashes were considered the norm. Roman law mandated scourging as part of capital sentences, but this probably had the effect of shortening the victim's agony on the cross. All of that, the gospel covers with the statement, Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Literally, the back of his body, the skin is filleted from his body. He stands there beaten. You say, why did he have him flogged? He hoped that if he humiliated him and beat him up bad enough, he wouldn't have to execute an innocent man. I mean, in John 19 and verse 4, once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, just so you know, when they put the thorns on, before they did that, they had beaten him in the face so badly that Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 14 says, they beat him, they marred his appearance beyond human recognition. He didn't even look like a human being in his face. Pilate said to them, here is the man. 
What he means is, look at him now. He's not going to cause you any more trouble. This is the Son of God going through this. This is the creator of everything that is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He is before all things, Colossians 1 says. All things were made by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. And the one who is that person gave his body for you and I. We've seen the physical explanation of flogging, but there are some very significant spiritual ramifications. Like everything else about his death, Jesus knew he would be flogged. He knew what he was facing. He told the disciples on more than one occasion these words, Matthew 20, verse 18, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. What he did was not accidental. It was intentional. He intended to be in a situation where he would be flogged because his flogging would purchase something valuable that we needed, our healing. The prophet Isaiah, seven centuries before this, wrote these words. He was despised and rejected, speaking of Jesus, predicting Jesus' death, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried, our sorrows that weighed him down, and we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Do you see it? Both forgiveness of sins and healing for our bodies are made possible through what Jesus did on the cross. The psalmist understood that forgiveness of sin and healing went together. In Psalm 103, listen to this. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your sins, every sin. Every sin you've ever committed, gone when you come to Jesus. Every sin you will ever commit, gone when you come to Jesus. He forgives all our sins and heals all your diseases, not the minor ones, not the easy ones, all your 
diseases. The passage in Isaiah 53 and verse 5 where it says, he was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed is telling us that a part of what happened in that time when Jesus went to the cross was he purchased for you and I the healing of our bodies by his stripes. Why is he flogged? Why does he go through that? Every single time that, that the whip comes down on him, it's to pay, it's to purchase your healing and mine. You say you're taking all of that from an Old Testament prophet? No, what happens is when Jesus starts his ministry in Matthew chapter 8, he goes to Peter's home in Capernaum and Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever and he walks in, he rebukes the fever, takes her by the hand and tells her to rise up and she's instantly healed. That evening at Peter's doorway, the demonized and the sick come and the Bible says in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16, and he healed all the sick. And then in verse 17, Matthew offers this commentary. This fulfilled the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, who said he took our sicknesses and removed our diseases. Just so we don't forget it, so we understand what Isaiah is talking about and what Jesus did for us. Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes, listen to this, you were healed. Healing's yours. It's a part of the atonement. Anytime we talk to people, people readily understand, oh, if I come to Jesus, he forgives me of my sin. People don't struggle believing that. What they struggle to believe is that there's healing because of what he did. And the Bible is very clear, without exception, without excuse, that there's healing based on what Jesus did. By his stripes, we were healed. All of that to say, when you come to be healed, you're simply asking to receive what Jesus paid for through his flogging. The price of your healing's already been paid, which means it doesn't happen because we deserve it. There's some here this morning and you're struggling with the idea of, do you deserve God to heal you? Nobody deserves God to heal them. Let's be clear on that. But it's not about what a person deserves. It's about what Jesus did. And he was flogged and his back was literally filleted so that you and I could have healing from all our diseases. So we're going to pray for the sick. We're going to believe God's going to heal people. Here's one of the things. I want to say a couple of things before we do this. As you're waiting to be prayed for, I want to encourage you to understand something that though healing affects your body physically, it is at its core a spiritual transaction. And there's something about you and I that when we worship the Lord, when we offer thanks to him, 
The Bible says, whosoever offers thanks glorifies me and prepares the way for me to show my salvation. When, you, when you're worshiping the Lord, you're preparing the way for God's work in your body. So as you're waiting in line, don't just stand there like you're waiting for the next bus. But worship the Lord. Say, Jesus, I worship. We're going to be leading in, in song, but just say, Jesus, I worship you and I thank you. You're my healer and I'm coming to receive the healing you purchased for me that your word says is mine. Did you catch that? It's yours. The word says it's yours. So put aside doubt, put aside unbelief, put aside questions. Just worship the Lord. In fact, let's stand right now, and I'd like us to do that right now. Just Would you just lift your hands? Lord, we've come before you, the healer. Jesus, it blows our mind. It's incomprehensible that the king of the universe, the creator of us and, and everything in the universe would give himself in a human body to be beaten in such a horrific way that we might be made whole. We don't understand it, but we know it's true. And you say it over and over again in your word that by your stripes we are healed. And Peter says, by your stripes we were healed. And our wholeness comes because of what you did. So I pray, oh God, right now, as we worship you and as we give you thanks, I pray, Lord, that faith would rise in the hearts of those who are going to be praying for the sick and those who are going to come to be prayed for, and that, oh God, you would honor their faith and may your healing power flow in such a way that, Lord, it would bring you great glory, both through the display of your power and the worship you receive and through the healing of the bodies of the people who so desperately need it. Father, I thank you for that. And Lord, we just, we believe. We believe. You did it for us that we might be whole. And so we've come this morning to receive that from you. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen.